Amen. Amen. Can we turn over to the uh, epistle of Paul to Titus again and to the uh, second chapter? We read through it again. I know we've read it a number of weeks, but we'll read through it again. The epistle of Paul to Titus to chapter 2 and beginning our reading at verse 1 of the chapter. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly loss, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly, in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Amen. We know the Lord will his Blessing to the reading of his precious word to our hearts. We're looking at the last number of verses there, uh, beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. And you can see right away that the subject of this portion here is grace. The grace of God hath appeared, uh, that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And it appeared, of course, in the person of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we think of how he came to be our Redeemer and our Savior. Now, when it says that the grace of God hath appeared to all men, just as an aside as we start, uh, it is one of these uh, times when you need to be very careful when you read in the Bible, all men. It doesn't mean, of course, Paul doesn't mean that the grace of God, the gospel of Christ, had to pre been preached to every person in the world at that time. That's not what he means. He means that it has been preached to all types of people, to Jews and to Gentiles, to Greeks and to barbarians. It has been preached to all types of people in different languages and so on. But the passage deals with grace. And like everything else in the gospel, both men and devils would seek to pervert 
and obscure the meaning of what grace is. Now, the biblical definition of grace is that it is unmerited favor. We read in Romans 3 and verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, which is why we don't boast in our own righteousness or what we have done. We rejoice in the grace of God, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we come and we depend upon the grace and the unmerited favor of God. But there is a distortion of the gospel teaching about grace today, and it is to the effect that God in his grace reaches out to all men, which he does. The gospel, the word of God is to go to all men everywhere. We are to call all men everywhere to repent. Uh, But the teaching today in many quarters, bolstered by the... um, uh, the, those are the powers that be uh, by the media, is that uh, God will accept anybody on their own terms without change. Now, there is a, a seed of truth in what they're saying, in that God will, as we said, accept men and women where they are, but they're called to repentance. They're called to change. There's got to be a change and a transformation as they're born again of the Spirit of God. But what we're being told today is that God will accept men no matter what they are. And we're told that God is a God of love. And because he's a God of love, he loves everybody no matter what they are. They might be in the deepest sin and continue in the deepest sin. But God is a God of love and we're intolerant and we're we're bigoted if we don't accept everybody because God will accept everybody. That's what we're being told today. Now that's a complete distortion of the gospel of grace. You'll see in this portion of Scripture that where grace is, there is something that's going to take place. There's going to be a transformation in the life. And those who have truly experienced the grace of God will know that there is a change that has taken place. The apostle Paul here describes the grace of God He says that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And he goes on then to describe what grace teaches, what grace uh, affords, what grace is. And when he describes grace here in this portion of Scripture, this is not a description of legalism. This is a description of grace. And there is a list of things that are going to be true of a person that is, has experienced grace. Now, many people would say, I am a legalist, but neither I nor the Apostle Paul is a legalist when I say that there are going to be things that are going to be true of those who have experienced the grace of God. So I want us just tonight to think and look at what Paul says about the grace of God that bringeth salvation here in this portion of Scripture. And the first thing that we notice about the grace of God that bringeth salvation is the worldliness we are to deny. Look at verses 11 and 12 again now. He says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. Now this is what it teaches us. 
teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. This is grace. This was Christ teaches us. But look at the sequence of the denial here. There are things that we deny if we have experienced the grace of God. And I want you to see that it says here, the grace of God uh, that bringeth salvation hath appeared, and then it teaches us these things. I don't want anybody to run away with the notion that I am preaching salvation by works or salvation by merit tonight, because there are those that might try to paint me into that kind of uh, thought. What I want you to see is the grace of God that bringeth salvation appears first in the life, and then that grace that appears in the life teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly loss whether we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So don't run away with the notion that I'm preaching some kind of legalism or that it is uh, uh, that we are saved by keeping the law or anything like that. Uh, but I want you to see very clearly that when grace does appear in the life, then it will teach us these things. So we see the sequence of grace. Salvation comes first. We are not saved by these works, but when we are saved, the works are seen in our lives. But not only do we see the sequence of the denial, but look at the summary of the, den- of the denial. What, are, what, we, what do we deny? What does grace teach us to deny? Well, look again at the text. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this world. Now look at those things. The first thing that we deny is ungodliness. What is ungodliness? Well, ungodliness is that attitude that says, uh, I want to live without God, or I want to make myself my own God. Uh, I'm the only God that I want. That's the kind of attitude that we can see. And you can see it uh, very well illustrated way back in Isaiah chapter 14, where we read about Lucifer and how he fell away back there in the beginning. And there was a thought that came into the mind and the imagination of the spectacular creature that was Lucifer. And he began to think um, in his own uh, imagination. He speculated what he would do if he were God. And then it went beyond speculation. And he said, I will be like the Most High. I want my throne to be on high. I will be like God. I'll choose to be the Most High. I'll do my own thing. I'll rule. I'll choose. I'll decide. And that was the essence of ungodliness. And then you recall that the same creature went to our mother Eve, and it's recorded in the early chapters of Genesis, his argument when he wanted her to eat of the forbidden fruit. What did he say to her? You shall be as gods. You'll be your own gods. You'll have your own pleasure, your own ambitions, all of these things. You'll have your own rights. And this is the essence of sin. When we want to put ourselves on the throne, and when we want to dethrone God, we think of how the prophet 
said about the people in Isaiah 53 that they had turned everyone to his own way. That's ungodliness. That's ungodliness. Where self is on the throne and where God is not on the throne. Now that can take us in two directions. It can take us up and out uh, like um, the old devil wanted to do or it can take us down and out but it's going to take us out whatever we do and this lawlessness and we think of that in the uh, in the word of God and it's why the Lord Jesus said to his disciples in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26 he said if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters yea in his own life also he cannot be my disciple he can't because he hasn't learned of me and the first thing that you learn about of me is that I'm God. I'm on the throne. I'm the one that's in charge. I'm the one that decides, that chooses, that directs. And dear friend, that is something that cuts deep. And maybe you say, well, I've never heard that before. Well, it doesn't matter if you've heard it before or not. It's what you do with that. Because we who are God's people, if we have experienced grace, then the first thing that we do is deny ungodliness that thing within us that wants to put self on the throne that wants us to be in the forefront we put that to death and he went on remember how the lord went on went to his disciples so likewise he said whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath he cannot be my disciple does that mean that everybody has to live out in the field or in the street no it doesn't mean that But it does mean that everything that we have takes secondary place to what we do with the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. And the first thing that it teaches us is to deny ungodliness. The second thing that it teaches us, and remember this is not legalism. This is a list, but it's not legalism. This is grace. He's talking about grace here. This is what grace does. Not only do we deny ungodliness, but we deny lustfulness. We are also to deny worldly passions here. Worldly lusts, it speaks about here in the portion of Scripture. And these lusts are the appetites, the desires, the cravings of the body. And, of course, uh, sexual compulsions are there. But it's not just that. It's anger and hatred and uh, ambition and things that urge us to uncontrolled speech and behavior of any kind. Those are the ungodly lusts that we are to deny. We're to separate from those things. We are called out from those things. 1 John 1 verse 16 makes it very clear for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust of the flesh, bodily pleasures, sex, food, drink, entertainment, overindulgence, misuse, addictions uh, of God-given physical gratifications, those overindulgences, those giving away to our appetites, 
The loss of the flesh, the loss of the eyes, envy, greed. Uh, things maybe that aren't bad in themselves, but we become greedy for those things. We, become, we begin to covet for money. We need money, but if we begin to covet money, we need a home, but if we begin to covet somebody's home, we, we need a little bit of rest. But if we begin to uh, get over uh, anxious about vacations, uh, uh, cars, clothes, anything, the loss of the eyes, the pride of life, the unquenchable thirst for popularity, applause, prideful display, pride of the age, cravings, lusting, flaunting ourselves, flaunting what we have. And we can recognize that in others, but we don't recognize it very well in ourselves. Oh, we go on to uh, some of the social media, people are boasting about what they have and all of the rest of it, and we can see through it a mile. But my, how often we don't see it through it in our own selves. No, we are to deny ungodliness, and we are to deny lustfulness. But then we are to deny unholiness. He says now that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this world. Now the word soberly is a word that we have seen uh, so many times down through this portion of Scripture here. It is uh, to live with restraint, really. It has the thought there of sense, being sensible in our self-controlled. That's really to govern ourselves, to govern our ways. That's what he's talking about here. And a child of God is somebody that has control of themselves, or more in particular, the Holy Spirit has control of us, so that we live soberly. And then we live righteously. We live in conformity to the will of God and the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we live godly in this present world. And of course, that's the opposite to ungodliness. We live in the sight of God. We know that God is there. God looks down upon us and sees us every day and every moment. And as we're conscious of that, we live in the light of the presence of God. But that is what grace teaches us. Not the law. Grace teaches us to live this way. So we notice the worldliness that we are to deny. But then look at the watchfulness we are to develop. Look now at verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Unbelievers have no hope. They have no hope. Their motto is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But sin prevents us from living in that way. We live in the light of the fact that our Savior is coming again, and that there is a world beyond, that there is a life that's going to stretch into eternity, and that is the great hope of every child of God. You see, if, 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 if that wasn't true, then we might as well eat and drink and be merry, uh, we will die tomorrow, we'll go, we might as well uh, live it up as far as this world is concerned. That's the philosophy of so many people. But my, when we realize that there is something beyond, there is something to come, we live in the light of that 
And that is the great hope of every child of God. This is not the end. There is a, a hereafter and there is eternity. And I want you to see that the blessed hope here, he speaks of the blessed hope and it speaks of that time when our Savior is coming again. And I want you to notice that it is a future hope. It is something that is yet to come. We live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age because we know that one day we're going to stand before our Savior. And we're looking for the blessed hope. In other words, this is future. This is something that is yet to come. And we're living in anticipation of that which is yet to come. And what is to come? The glorious appearing of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he will come uh, for his people and with his people. He will come to this world. He'll come to the sky. Those that are uh, uh, dead in Christ will be caught up to meet him in the air. And then those that are alive and remain will be caught up to meet him in the air. And then we will come. He will set up his kingdom and we will reign with him uh, throughout the millennium. And then after the millennium, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. But this will be forever. And this is the hope of every child of God. And I want you to see that there is that time when our Savior is coming again. He will come not to save the soul of man, but the second time he'll come to resurrect the body of man. He came the first time to save the individual. The second time he comes to save society. The first time he comes to be crucified. The second time he comes to be crowned. And he's coming and he will reveal himself in power and in great glory. What a day that is, the great hope of every child of God. And we're watching, the apostle says, look for that. Look, uh, have your eyes opened, always anticipating the glorious coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see the blessed hope is a future hope. But also I want you to see it's a fulfilling hope. It's going to fulfill all the longings of God's people. I read in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, it says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And when the child of God dies, we go to be with Christ, our soul, and goes into the presence of the Lord. And Paul spoke of how to die was gain. He said, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. There couldn't be any gain unless he was uh, going somewhere, unless he was going to meet his Lord. But the souls of men and women who have gone to glory at the moment are disembodied. They do not have their body and there is that sense, while there is complete happiness in heaven, there is that sense in which the whole of our redemption is not complete until body and soul are reunited. When the body will rise from the grave that, that we read there, when the Lord comes back again, those that are dead in Christ will rise first 
and they're, they're, they'll be given glorious bodies like unto his glorious body. In other words, they're glorified bodies. We, we will know who they are, but they're glorified. There's a, there's a mystery in that, really. We can't go into the whole ins and outs of that because the Bible doesn't give us the full details of that. But, but we know that they will be glorified. You know, the, the Lord had a glorified body, and at first the disciples didn't seem to know him. And there was something different about him. But then, somehow, suddenly at times, they, they said, that's the Lord. And as soon as that discernment came, they knew it was the Lord. I presume, um, I'm getting off track here, but I presume that's going to be something similar. There'll be something different, but something similar. Of course, with all the aches and the pains and all of the infirmities of the body, We'd, look, we'd probably look different anyway, I'm sure. But we think of that wonderful day when our Savior is coming again. But anyway, this is a fulfilling hope because it's going to fulfill the redemption of God's people. And then I want you to see it's a forever hope. If you, if you were to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and look at verses 17 to 19, of course, 1 Corinthians 15 is the great passage on this. Uh, but look at verses um, 17 to 19. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you're yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But the thing is that the dead in Christ have not perished. They have not perished. If you go down to verse 26, he says, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Death is destroyed. We have eternal life and will never perish. We'll be with the Lord throughout all eternity. What a hope. What a blessed hope. And Paul says here to Titus, look for that. Uh, uh, have your eyes upon that and keep that always before your view day by day. But something else, here's Paul's description of grace we're thinking about here. We're thinking about the things that grace teaches us. And if you look now, I want you to see the work that we are to do. Now look at verse 14. We'll deal with the rest of the verse, but I'm going to take the last part first here. Look at verse 14, anyway. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. We are to be zealous of good works. Now, you can see the existence of good works here. Grace leads us to good works. Grace leads us to be changed. Um, it isn't that we go out and are the same as we've always been. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should work in them. We go out as we are saved when grace works in our lives and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. Then we are impelled and uh, we want to go out and uh, present the message of salvation to others want to advance the kingdom of God. 
But I want you to see the eagerness for good works. He speaks there of being zealous. Zealous for good works. And the word zealous means to boil over or to glow hot. To boil. That's really what he's speaking about. Somebody that's zealous has an active interest in the thing, but more than that, an enthusiasm. It's what they want to do. It is something that they are involved in constantly because that's what they're interested in. Spurgeon said, the apostle finishes up by saying that we are a people zealous of good works. Would to God that all Christian men and women were disciplined by divine grace till they became zealous for good works. In holiness, zeal is sobriety. We are not only to approve of good works and speak for good works, but we are to be red hot for them. We are to be on fire for everything that is right and true. We may not be content to be quiet and inoffensive, but we are to be zealous of good works. Oh, that my Lord's grace would set us in fire in this way. There's plenty of fuel in the church. What is wanted is fire. And men, women, we need that kind of zeal, don't we? We need it in our own hearts. William MacDonald spoke passionately as he defined the true disciple of Christ. And he said, a disciple, I quote, can be forgiven if he does not have great mental ability. He can be forgiven also if he does not display outstanding physical prowess. But no disciple can be excused if he does not have zeal. If his heart is not aflame with red-hot passion for the Savior, he stands condemned. And of course, it is the disgrace of the, 20th, or the 21st century church that communists and cultists have more zeal than many of God's people. The fiery bishop, J.C. Ryle, gives a similar challenge. He said, a zealous man in religion is a man of one thing. He sees one thing, he cares for one thing, he's swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. A zealous saviour ought to have zealous disciples. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf declared, I have only one passion, it is he, it is he. Of course, he was speaking of the saviour. The work that we're to do, we're to be zealous for good works. Grace teaches us to be zealous for good works. But one more thing, and that's the worship we are to devote. Now look at verses 14 and 15 again. It says um, there uh, that the Lord uh, gave, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Uh, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Now, Paul turns his attention to the work on the cross. And of course, this is his worship. Paul, you find in his epistles, he is liable to burst out in praise and adoration. He could have said here, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of um, Jesus Christ. But he adds the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But then he goes on. He goes on to describe the Savior 
who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. You see, he can't help himself. Paul is so filled with praise and adoration to God that as soon as he mentions the Lord Jesus Christ, he goes on reciting the wonderful things that our Savior accomplished there on the cross of Calvary. And you can see then that grace leads us to worship. Grace brings us to the place where we begin with all our heart. We burst out in wonder, love, and praise to our God. Now, look at what he praises. He speaks of the Savior as the substitute who gave himself for us. There's vicarious suffering. There is the vicarious, the substitutionary death, the act of the Lord's giving himself that perfect sacrifice that we might be saved. And the Lord gave himself, and it's a gift. It's not merited. It's not earned. It's not deserved. He gave himself for us. And surely then, that gift draws out our worship and our love. Not only does he speak of him as the substitute, but as the Savior, that he might redeem us from all inequity. And of course, redeem speaks of being brought, bought back from the slave market of sin. To redeem means to buy freedom. And the people that Paul was writing to in Roman society would have been very uh, familiar with the fact of slavery and how people sometimes were bought out of slavery. If you were going to set somebody free, you had to pay the price of the slave, and then you could set the person free. A missionary in West Africa was trying to uh, get the meaning or get a word in a tribal language for redeem. And he uh, had an African man there with him who was trying to help him to get these words, and he just described to him what it was that he wanted uh, to get a definition. And the man, the uh, man who was helping him said it was the Bamba language or Bambara language uh, that he was trying to translate into. And the man who was speaking the language said, we say that God took their heads out in the language he spoke in the native language. But that was that was the saying, that God took their heads out. The mystery was a little bit puzzled by that, and he asked the man, what, how, how, did the come, how did he come about that meaning or translation? And he said, well, in the days of uh, slavery, I suppose slavery still exists in Africa, maybe right up to that time and beyond, he said that the tribal chiefs would send into the interior and they'd take captives and they would bring them out And he said they would pass by some of the uh, tribal leaders. And if one of the tribal leaders knew somebody, he could pay the price of that slave and he would be set free. And of course, they they were shackled together. They had bands uh, like yokes around their necks. And so when they were set free, their necks were taken out. And that was the thought behind redeem. And the Lord has taken our necks out, hasn't he? He has redeemed us, not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, 
but with that precious blood of a lamb without blemish and without spot, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed through the blood of the lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. He speaks there about the Savior, and we praise God for that. And then the sanctifier, he will purify unto himself a peculiar people, a, a, a people who are his special possession. That's what peculiar means. His, like diamonds, um, his very, very own people. And he has purified us. And that's what he's doing at this very present time. Our names are on his heart. Our names are engraved on the palms of his hands. And we are his peculiar treasure. And he's purifying us and bringing us to himself. And we praise God for that. But you can see there in the portion of Scripture, you can see that grace leads here in a very peculiar way to the uh, worldliness that we deny. And then there is the watchfulness that we are to develop and the work that we are to do and the worship that we are to devote. And grace does that in the lives of those who are truly saved and washed in the precious blood of the Lamb. And oh, that in these days we might praise our Savior and be zealous for good works and seek to win men and women to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's unite together at the throne of grace and each one Let's uh, seek the help of God as we cry unto God tonight. Remember the sick, but do please remember especially our, um, uh, the drive-in mission. Uh, pray for the tracts and uh, booklets, the leaflets, the invitations.